This is Sarah Stewart-Holland. And this is Beth Silvers. Thank you for joining us for Pantsuit Politics. Hello, and welcome to Pantsuit Politics, where we take a different approach to the news. It's Beth here for the last week of our summer schedule. It's flown by. Next week, Sarah and I will be back together on our regular schedule. But before that, on Friday, which happens to be her birthday, Sarah has a full episode for you about what she's learning from her son's experience with type 1 diabetes. So I hope you'll tune in for that. We have so many things planned for you in the fall. At the top of our list is our live event in Paducah, Kentucky on October 20th and 21st. Tickets will go on sale to premium members the week of August 7th in order of support for the show. So our executive producers will have the first opportunity to buy tickets on Monday, the next tier on Tuesday, and so on. Then we'll open tickets to the general public on Monday, August 14th. So if you are subscribed on Patreon or Apple Podcast subscriptions, you'll have the first opportunity to purchase tickets, and then everyone else will come in that next week on August 14th. We are very excited about this weekend with you. You can find much more information about what it will entail on our website, which we've also linked in the show notes. As I am recording at 12.50 p.m. Eastern Time on Monday, July 24th, I can feel the American news media holding its breath, wondering whether special counsel Jack Smith will indict former President Donald Trump again today, tomorrow, soon, ever, and how that potential second indictment will impact his run for the Republican Party's presidential nomination. The only thing new that I can share with you about the former president's legal woes today is that the classified documents case, the first federal indictment, is now scheduled to go to trial in May 2024. The judge in that case initially set the trial for August, but then the government asked to delay it to December because of the volume and sensitivity of evidence in the case. Trump and his co-defendant, Walt Nauta, asked to postpone the trial indefinitely. Running for president while fielding legal challenges from multiple jurisdictions is very time-consuming, and Trump is not in a hurry to have this or any case go to trial. The judge in the case heard arguments and settled on May. There will be numerous motions on a very tight schedule between August and May, and for what it's worth, I think setting the trial in May is very reasonable. The Iowa caucuses are set for January 15th. Given the big dealness of indicting a former president and Trump's history of fighting everything in court tooth and nail, I never expected his trials to conclude before the Republican primary. I think it's better for this case, like all criminal cases, to proceed fairly and justly. And I think this is still a really aggressive timeline for a case that involves highly sensitive national security information, months of camera footage, numerous witnesses, and over a million pages of documents. So for now, I'm thinking about what it means that the frontrunner for the Republican nomination has already been criminally indicted and maybe again. I'm thinking about my Facebook feed, which is populated almost entirely by Barbie reviews and thoughts on Jason Aldean's Try This in a Small Town. I'm thinking about whether or not to see the sound of freedom. A number of listeners have asked for my thoughts, and I can't give my thoughts without seeing the film. And I don't know. Here we are in a world where Ben Shapiro is yelling about Barbie's wokeness and a country music song has caused half my timeline to stand with a star while the other half explains why the song is racist. And I can't decide whether spending $15 on a movie ticket is a rational or ridiculous act. 
A few months ago, we received a message from a listener about her daughter's appearance on a podcast. The daughter, Kennedy Miller, was interviewed about her favorite show, which happens to be ours. Kennedy's mom was so proud and so enthusiastic that I just had to listen. In addition to being extremely generous about her love of pantsuit politics, Kennedy talked about how she'd love to be a guest on our show someday to discuss her complex feelings about being a woman from the South who was raised in the Bible Belt bubble and how she has since re-examined her life. Kennedy expressed her love for her place and her people, and also how she sees the world as much more expansive than she knew it to be as a kid. American culture is complicated right now. I think many of us are trying to figure out how to be who we are, where we are, sifting through what made us and what we can hold on to versus what we reject. So today, Kennedy is joining me to offer her perspective. And I hope that you find this discussion as rich and relevant as I did. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsuit Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less, no thawing required. You can fully customize your Wild Grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. I'm so happy that you're here today. I would love for you to just take a minute and introduce yourself to all of our listeners. Yes, of course. First of all, I just want to say that I've been listening to Pantsuit Politics for almost six years now since I was a freshman in college. And the two of you have been such a safe haven and a resource and an 
admiration for me. So thank you for all the work that you do. It's absolutely surreal to be talking to you. So thank you. Oh, thank you. I am a 22, almost 23-year-old from Rocky Mountain, North Carolina, which is a very small town on the eastern part of the state. I currently live in London, England, where I am a Marshall Scholar and an opera singer at the Royal Academy of Music, which is just absolutely the most rewarding and amazing thing I've ever done. And a lot of my work right now centers on the intersection of feminism and opera, which are two things that on paper I think don't look like go together. But given my background as someone who was very much indoctrinated into this bubble of very conservative Bible Belt Christian values, and now I'm finding a way to reclaim some of that. Um, it is work that I find to be really personal to me and important to me. So um, that is a lot of the, the personal and professional work that I've been doing at the moment. Well, I'm glad that you went right to your sense of place, because I was excited to talk with you after I heard you say you wanted to talk with us about being a woman from the South and what that imprints on your life and how to hold this tension of loving the place that we're from while also being critical of the place that we're from. And I think that's just something that a lot of us are working through right now. How do we have an honest accounting of our history without losing the love and respect and joy that we find in our place? Yeah, absolutely. I definitely had a very white, middle-class, conservative, traditional Christian upbringing, and very much did not realize until I was much older, late into my teens, early 20s, that that was very much a bubble of an experience. And it wasn't until I got out of that bubble for the first time that I became critical of it and reflected on the very real damage and hurt that that sort of upbringing did on me, while also acknowledging that that was my life for most of what I can remember and the joys of my childhood are still very, very present and trying to find that dichotomy of being critical, but also being so in love with the South and being so proud to be a Southern woman. It's very complex and nuanced and dichotomous and it's hard, but I think it's it's work that I'm passionate about and, and must continue to do for the sake of loving the South and continuing to be proud of my identity. Tell me about realizing that you had been in a bubble. When did you start to think, oh, wait, not everything functions the way that it has functioned in my life and what that felt like for you? Mm, I remember being 16 years old. And when I was 16 was the first time in my life that I had a deep, substantial conversation with someone who was not in the bubble ever. And I had gone to this summer camp called North Carolina Governor's School, where it was students from all over the state who were brought for six weeks to basically just talk about difficult topics and study a specific thing. So I was there to sing and do choral music, but I was also there to have conversations with students my age about current issues. And we played this game, I guess you could call it, where there was a spectrum on the floor of different issues and social justice issues. And we were told to stand on the floor according to how we fell on that spectrum. And I remember the Roe v. Wade question coming up. And at the time, I was very passionately pro-life and was indignant about it and, you know, would have told you back then that women who commit abortions should go to jail. Like the whole thing like was just completely a complete lack of nuance and lots of indoctrination going on there. And I was the only student who was stood on like that far side of the spectrum. And I remember just being completely and utterly 
shocked and mortified that I would be the only person who felt this way. And it wasn't until I had conversations with people my age that had the different backgrounds and experiences and upbringings that I realized that maybe I was the one that was missing a lack of knowledge or nuance or influence. And it was in talking to my peers who were very gracious and generous to have these difficult conversations with me that I began for the first time at 16 to do a lot of the unlearning and processing and thinking about these things really, really deeply. And that was kind of the catalyst for a lot of the undoing that I've been continuing to do now. That makes me smile because Kentucky has a similar program that I went to between my junior and senior year of high school, Governor Scholar. And I remember being at that program and being in a a dorm room full of women who were on my hall. And there was a woman on our hall who was very kind of vocally atheist. And it was clearly the first time most of us had ever met anyone who would say that out loud. Mm. And there was like this incredibly intense conversation about whether she was going to hell taking place right in front of her among all these women. Mm. And I was listening to what all of the the girls who identified as like strongly Christian were saying to her. And I remember like the dissonance of knowing that I guess that is what I have learned. Like, I guess what they're saying is what I have been learning in Sunday school and church. But also everything about the conversation felt wrong to me and broken. And uh, the word I would use now is like meager and sad. And so I just hung out in the room. I didn't say anything during the conversation, but I stayed after basically everyone had left except for the two girls in the room. And I said, hey, I just want to tell you that like, I think that was awful what just happened. And I don't believe that you're going to hell. And none of this reflects like the loving God that I believe that that my family and I worship. And it, and it really struck me that maybe I was not in the bubble that I thought I was in, that like I, I had exposure to that and attended a church that would fit in the scope of the beliefs that were being articulated, but that I was really rejecting the way that poured out when we, when we weren't in the bubble anymore. So I really strongly relate to that experience. Yeah, absolutely. I, then had a, a similar story kind of to you of then being on the opposite side of, of that conversation. When I started doing that unlearning at 16, that very much followed me through the rest of my high school years. And during my senior year of high school, I went to my very last summer camp kind of with the girls at my church. And I remember having a conversation with a friend of mine about the ways that we might raise our future theoretical kids, the way that we would interact with our future theoretical spouses. And I remember saying, you know, I want to have Bible study with my kids later on in adulthood, but I want to have an equal share of the teaching of my children in the word. And I want to have an equal share of praying over them and reading scripture over them. And I was told by my friends that I was twisting scripture for my feminist political agenda. And I just remember feeling like, Here I am so excited to lovingly teach my future children about a faith that I feel very rooted in. And the only thing that you can focus on is the ways that it doesn't match your interpretation of scripture and your political views. And I just remember thinking like, if this is where that conversation leaves you feeling concerned, then that is a a really real problem. And that was honestly, that was the last kind of church event for that specific 
community that I ever went to. And with conversations with my parents, like we kind of all decided to leave and pursue a community that better aligned with our values and our interpretations of scripture. But it's just so frustrating, like you're saying, of just this like very close-minded attitude towards there's one way to interpret scripture and there's one way for gender roles to look like in our society. It can be really, really frustrating to be on both sides of it as I've reflected on my teenage years for sure. So your friends accused you of being a feminist at that point. Was that sort of the first time that you heard feminism as an insult or was that kind of part of the language of your upbringing too? That was definitely part of it. I mean, forever and always. I remember being seven years old the first time that I noticed the overwhelming maleness of my church community. And it was because I was I was sat in the back pew of my church where my family would always sit every Sunday morning. And instead of the usual line of older ushers in well-pressed suits that were coming to pass out the offering plates, it was a group of rowdy young boys from my Sunday school class. And I completely freaked out as a seven-year-old because I thought that there had been some sort of administrative error that my parents forgot to respond to an email and that I was left out of this really special opportunity to stand up in front of my church and to serve in this way. I was always a very ambitious, well-behaved child who loved opportunities like that. It's no wonder that I'm a singer now. It kind of all makes sense. But I remember being told later, you know, no, like we're preparing specifically our boys for the leadership that they will carry in the church one day. And you are not allowed to be part of that. And then that was kind of the catalyst at seven for me realizing, oh, women never pass out paper bulletins with the order of service. Women never teach or preach or are allowed to be the head of any sort of committee, no matter how minor or small. And it was then as a child who, again, have always been very naturally prone to leadership, prone to being excited about opportunities like that. It was instilled in me from a very young age that that is an aspect of myself to not trust and to suppress and to not agree with. And then if I saw other women being leaders in that very explicit way, that that was something to not trust and to not agree with. So the whole idea of the feminist movement was absolutely something from a young age that was taught to me and instilled in me to be really mistrustful of because it was I was taught the very opposite of of what God's plan for society at large was supposed to be, which was really, really hard. It sounds like your parents were supportive, though, when you were ready to make a change. Mm. I wonder how that unfolded for your family. Had they long had concerns about all of this and you were the, the catalyst to make change or what happened there? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, again, it wasn't until later that I started critically thinking about all of these things. I existed in that bubble and agreed with it and often felt the guilt and the shame and the hurt, but just thought that that was part of it and that that was okay. And my mother was born and raised in that same church. My dad didn't start going to church until he married my mom. So that was his first religious experience. So to be honest, like the three of us and my whole family, none of us knew different or knew better. And it wasn't until they really saw the effects it was having on me as a later teenager. And as they started to critically think about, you know, well, this happened and that wasn't quite right. And that didn't really align with our values that we decided as a family that it was appropriate to leave. But to be honest, they have been just 
the best support system in all of that. I mean, we still have very different interpretations of scripture in certain ways, but my family, they are so open-minded and so generous and so willing to have really deep conversations with me about things that are really difficult that I still struggle with in regards to my faith. And I just couldn't love them more for all of their support and ability to be generous in the ways that they think critically about these things as well. I think it is a really beautiful testament to your family that you all navigated all of this and you felt things like guilt and shame, like you have some of the language of being really hurt by a community of faith and you were able to transition into a new one and kind Mm -hmm. of hold on to what you liked without losing the whole picture to all of that hurt. Right. That feels like a struggle that a lot of people are going through to me. Church has hurt me badly. I know there there is some good in it that I would love to have back in my life, but I don't know how to have the good without the bad. And it seems like you all have held that really well. And I wonder if that is a model for how you think about being Southern, too. I think definitely, for sure. I think for a long time, in regards to the church, I struggled to differentiate the bitterness I had towards my specific experience with a bitterness for for God and my faith. And it really hasn't been until the last couple of years that I've found this really comfortable, peaceful way that I think about my faith. I think my identity as a Southern woman has had a very similar trajectory. Um, when I was in high school, I had, in, throughout my childhood, a very, very strong Southern accent. I mean, the twangiest of North Carolina twangs you've ever heard. When I went to UNC, I did not want people to assume that I was stupid or was conservative by my accent. So I very quickly learned how to suppress it. And now I talk like I do now and I'm I'm still struggling, but try to kind of get the accent back because I want to reclaim it. But I definitely blamed the South and, and accused my Southern identity for the reason that my politics were the way they were growing up until I kind of changed them. Um, the injustice of the South, I completely like blamed. There was no nuance to it. It was just one large monolithic thing. And it wasn't until later that I started thinking critically in, an, in a more nuanced way about, you know, I love the accent and God, I love Southern hospitality. Like there's nothing like it. And that's something that I love implementing now that I live in London. Like I'm just known for being the one that you can come crash on my couch whenever. And of course, I'll make you dinner anytime. And that sort of hospitality that I used to kind of dislike because I thought that it was rooted in this gendered Southern womanhood type thing that I didn't align with. I tried to suppress it and now I don't anymore. And it's been this really beautiful healing process of just reclaiming the things that I loved and feel proud of while being very critical of the things that have hurt me in a very deep way. So I work to lose my accent, too. I totally relate to that. I would love to have it back now. I just don't know how to get it. (laughs) Because what you practice is what you become, right? Mm -hmm. And I think also that I have had a sense about that hospitality element, that there is something unsophisticated in waving to every car that passes by or um, offering every person who comes to the door a beverage or, you know, the, the things that were just so normal we didn't even notice them growing up, now feel a little bit like a reach. Like there's a vulnerability in it Mm. in the place that I live now versus the place that I grew up in. And I wish that we could figure out how to frame that up for people and say, look at at this 
not just generosity, but the vulnerability attached to that kind of generosity. It is a really nice feature of a place. (laughs) And it's a really important thing to keep in mind as you consider how to break through issues of racism and sexism, that there is goodness here to build from. Mm. And how do we reach into that goodness and build from it instead of just identifying all of the bad and brushing the whole place with that bad? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's precisely what I was doing really until a few years ago when I realized I was probably going to move to London and was grappling for the first time with what it would be like to leave the South. And then moving to London and being really immersed in British culture has made me in a lot of places fall in love with the South again, because there's so many things that I deeply missed that I never thought that I would. And a lot of it is that kind of like messiness you talk about. Like, I love just going to my friends' houses and, you know, of course, people try to make their homes presentable in a certain way, but there's no like tension about like everything has to be really perfect. And I have to like, make sure that this is spotless and that I have like this food prepared just right. But it's just like, come as you are and like exist in my place as it is. And let's just like exist in our innate, like messy, complex humanness together in this messy, complex space. And I absolutely adore that. And that's something that I want to always keep with me as I continue to move around and maybe live in London for longer. I think it's something I always want to have with me because it's really special and I think unique to the South as well. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and June has you covered. We've talked about Olive and June's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are going to last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and June also has press-ons if you want. What I love, though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsuit for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipsea stories.com slash pantsuit. 
dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college, y'all. He's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pantsuit. curious what you learned about race growing up. Mm, well, to be honest, like nothing. That experience when I was 16 was the first time that I learned about the injustices regarding capital punishment. I never knew that there was a disproportionate amount of Black people in prisons or that were um, getting executed in my state. I just had no, I absolutely no idea. Um, my church was very, very white. There was another church like two miles away that was like the church with predominantly a Black congregation. And that was just seen as very acceptable. After that experience, when I was 16, I began to critically think about, you know, why is this so segregated still? And I remember bringing this up in a Bible class because I went to a Christian high school, which also endorsed some of these values that I struggled with growing up as well. Um, so again, just all these institutions in my life were existing in this one bubble. And I remember bringing up that concern in this Bible class and being told, you know, like, it's okay because we all have our own cultures and our ways that we like to worship. And like, we don't need to pursue racial diversity because like everyone has their own ways of doing things. And I was like, again, it's just this way to sweep over issues of injustice and make the South and issues of race such a monolith. And I think that is the thing that I really began to have a problem with was just this like generalization of white congregations act like this and black congregations act like this. And there's just no nuance and it's okay to have this sort of like really explicit segregation as late as 2023. And it was just always seen as, as that sort of monolithic general thing. And it wasn't until later when I made friends who were different from me and had conversations with people that were different from me that my eyes were open to the very real and ugly problem of race in the South, which is shocking because the South has such a history of obviously race issues with Jim Crow and obviously slavery. Like it's such a thing. And yet it was never instilled in me to think about those things critically until I was much older and got out of that bubble, which is really, really important to think about now. I will never forget being in a sociology class in college and the professor asked us to write down the top three words about our identity. And when we finished, he said, now I'm guessing that if you are a student of color, you first wrote down your racial identity and the, the handful of students of color had. Mm. And he said, I'm guessing that if you are white, it didn't even occur to you 
to label yourself as white. And that was true. And it was true for all of us. And he said, that is privilege. Mm -hmm. So that's that's what you need to understand about yourself, that you that you don't even consider your race. You don't have to. You don't have to think about it. And that really landed with me, especially when he said, now I'm guessing that all of the women students put women down. <laughs> like, if you are a right. white woman, I bet woman went down as your first word. And I bet if you are a man, it didn't occur to you to write that down. That is another form of privilege. And he just kind of took us through this exercise. It was non-judgmental. It wasn't unkind in any way. In fact, I think it was just a really generous way of explaining, like, through what filters does the world see you? And how should you understand that in relation to how other people understand the filters that the world sees them through? It was just a really transformative experience for me. Mm -hmm. And and it landed with me for the first time that so many aspects of how I grew up, I never examined in any meaningful way because no one had put that type of question in front of me. So I'm curious, since you have been through these moments of like eye-opening and developed new relationships and now have lived, you know, across the ocean from the place you grew up, how has that impacted your politics? Hmm. I am so much more, again, I think just nuance is the best word that I can use. Like growing up in the South, and having just this, you know, my community told me to believe this. And so I chose to believe it. And then kind of a really dramatic unlearning where I went to this way other side of like, well, okay, well, I hate everything about where I grew up and I hate everything about the South and about Christianity. And I'm just going to like reject all of it to now coming into this really beautiful kind of healed thing. Um, I think I've realized that, you know, my politics don't have to be a monolith either. Like I can be a Democrat and vote as a Democrat, but also be critical of things in the party and disagree with things in the party and like be super left-wing on some things and more centrist on others. And I don't think I had allowed myself to believe that that was possible for a very long time until the unlearning of my own childhood and the values instilled in me as a child um, was work that I began doing. But I think a lot of my personal work now is just finding the balance and thinking about things as, as not one giant general identity, but rather what are the small things within this that I can think critically about and accept or not accept or endorse and not endorse. And it has become this really like complicated, but in a good way thing, I think. Well, I feel like allowing for that kind of complexity indicates that you feel a sense of agency. Mm -hmm. And I feel like coming out of high control religious spaces, purity culture, the rigidity that some of that Southern hospitality can also lead to, mm. feeling that sense of agency is a big deal and is a lot of growth to have experienced by your early 20s. I'm glad that you brought up purity culture because I think a lot of that has to do with the reason that the unlearning became necessary for my survival and my healing in a lot of ways. I mean, to be told from a young child, like prepubescent, that you have the ability with your body as it is to cause the hellbound damage of the boys in your life can cause a very deep hatred and mistrust of the body that you live in. And to grow into that body as a woman with all of the changes that that comes with in order to survive 
in that body and be comfortable with it. Like you have to do that unlearning really, really quickly, which was really hard. And I'm still, gosh, I'm still really healing from it because that stuff is really deep seated. But on the good side, it's allowed me to think about all of these things critically from a very young age, which has been a really good thing for my identity at large, I think. What has been valuable to you in that healing and unlearning process? I definitely think it is just immersing myself into communities of really strong, passionate women who are also very different from me, but also very similar to me in a lot of ways. I have lots of friends who had a very similar childhood to me as growing up in the South, unlearning a lot of that type of purity, modesty culture, um, and coming into this idea of what strength can be. Two of my best friends are from New Orleans, Louisiana, and one is a Black woman and one is a Black woman from Kokomo, Indiana. And this trio of women has like really changed my life in another way to not only experience, you know, this was a Midwestern way of growing up and this was a way of growing up in like the city of New Orleans and all of that beauty that comes with that, but also having friends of of different races than me, which was not something that was available to me as a child, has been the most beautiful friendship of my life and the, the circle of friends that I now have in London, here at home, abroad, elsewhere in the country. I think that this circle of women is just really like absolutely everything to me and continues to help me think about things critically and unlearn things while also like learning more perspective that also informs what I'm thinking about too. So just absolutely obsessed with the women in my life and couldn't love all of them more. I'm so glad that you have that. And I think that's a wonderful answer because it's easy to look for tools or classes or this is the book that really shaped me. And and there's a place for all of that. But I think to find that in between, like the place where you say, okay, for example, sex is is sacred and, and important and serious. And also my sexuality is wonderful and beautiful and, mm-hmm. and a gift and not anything to be ashamed of. I think that really takes conversation with real live humans who are working out the same questions that you are. I'm just not sure that we can find a theory out there that really gets us to feel comfort with that. And Mm -hmm. it's the feeling of comfort where I think all that agency comes from. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, too, it's about seeing the different ways in which a woman can be empowered and that empowerment doesn't mean one thing. I mean, here I am, grew up in the South, went to college and have chosen this very like explicit way to be independent by moving away, going to a foreign country, the whole thing. I have other friends in my hometown that also went away to college, also gained perspective, but chose to come home and to marry their high school sweetheart and to start families by the time they were 21. And they are so empowered and so undeniably happy because they chose that. And I am so undeniably happy because of what I chose. And I hope that when we have our respective hypothetical daughters one day, that we will introduce them to each other to be like, here, growing up, you've had this mother that had this version of empowerment and independence. Meet my friend who's done this. And it's about, you know, not indoctrinating womanhood to be one thing, which is how I grew up. But it's about just letting women be women and letting women have choices and choose what is empowering to them. And I think that is when the real beauty and healing happens. So Kennedy, I'm 20 years older than you are. 
I think a lot about what might come in the next 20 years for me in terms of my politics and my faith and my understanding of of community and race and diversity. So I wonder what you think might be next for you. Like as you roll it forward and you think about how far you've come in a relatively short period of time, what are your hopes for what's next? I think that Honestly, for the first time, I am content like not knowing what's next in a very specific way, but knowing that probably for the next 10 years, I'm going to be in school in some capacity. I love school. I'm good at school. I want to get my doctorate one day. Like That's kind of the trajectory. I don't know where that will be. I love living in Europe, but I love the South too. could see myself coming home one day. And I just hope the next 20 years are about this slow, but really constant and beautiful journey towards just learning more. Like I just crave to learn in an academic way and a life way. Um, I hope I travel a lot. I hope that me and my girlfriends like stay really close and like introduce each other to our future spouses and kids and things. Like I think I just want to grow into this continual learning, continual socializing with my friends Like that is just really, that is the joy of life to me right now. I mean, obviously music is huge to me. That's the career I want to pursue. I hope I sing a lot. And I think everything that I'm doing right now, but like more of it and more perspective on it would be really ideal. I hope that for you too. I think that's a beautiful vision. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Well, thank you so much for this conversation. If you would stick around for a minute, I would love to chat with you outside of politics too. Sure. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, And Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you Ritual for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. 
Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. We always end our show talking about something outside of politics. And Kennedy, I want to hear about moving to London and, and singing opera. <laughs> moving to London and singing opera is such a funny niche thing that I am doing. And I am just absolutely obsessed with it. I, I go to the Royal Academy of Music. So I'm in a cohort of about 25 singers. I'm one of two Americans, and most of them are British or are from Europe. And getting to know like the funny cultural differences between the Brits and between, you know, my my upbringing has been like absolutely hilarious. Like they love to make fun of my accent and vice versa. Like there's just lots and lots of banter going on. And then just the school experience of the British Conservatoire coming from a giant public liberal arts university like UNC into a tiny British Conservatoire has also been a really interesting and hard transition. I don't think I realized how much I relied on academic validation to Mm. get me through on days when I thought my singing wasn't going great until I moved to London and all I do all day is sing for hours and hours and hours and I don't have essays anymore to like make me feel good on the days when I might have a bad voice day. So it's just been a really big transition, but in a really beautiful, beautiful way. I want to know how you continue to love singing when it is your professional focus. So I went to college intending to major in voice. Mm. And when I was taking voice lessons that first year, I was really struggling with tongue tension. Looking back, that feels very obvious to me. I think I was struggling with tension all around. I think I was one big ball of tension. But I remember like being in a practice room, looking in a mirror, like just staring at my tongue, thinking like, relax, relax, which, you know, is very helpful. So I, I realized this is not fun for me. Like I want to enjoy music Mm. and I don't know if I can enjoy it if I am trying to be really good at it. Have you ever had that experience or has it just been a joy all along? 
Oh, it is so hard. Like that is the constant struggle, right? Is like recognizing that singing is such a technical and anatomical craft. Like just like I deal with tongue tension too, but mine is really like a lot of like high ab breath tension. And on days when I'm stressed or haven't slept well enough, or like depending on what I ate, like the tension just shoots up and down. And sometimes there's no rhyme or reason. And just knowing that your voice exists in your body and is ruled by your body can be a very frustrating thing. But I think in a lot of ways now, what I, what I root myself in is that I kind of tie my voice and my vocal identity to my womanhood in this way that because my voice exists in my body and it is embedded into my anatomy, it cannot be replicated and it is only mine and No one else can touch it or tell me how to use it or how to nurture it or how to perform in any sort of ways. And like, it just gets to be mine. And for a long time growing up, feeling like my body wasn't always mine, like having a voice and using it in the way that I want to use it is so healing and empowering to know that this instrument is something that I just get to have. And like, no one else even gets to look at it. And it just gets to be this like beautiful thing that I get to do. Um, I think of that a lot and on really bad, tough days. I'm just like, but remember like how much you're obsessed with the fact that your instrument is inside of you and is connected to the very breath that keeps you alive. And I think it's this very like ideological philosophical thing that I kind of come back to, but it helps because a lot of what I do is so technical and so specific that I think rooting myself in the joy of kind of these ideologies and values about my voice has been really helpful. I love that. That makes me feel like we've made enormous generational progress because I I do think, you know, I don't have regrets about my life. I I love the life that I have. I wouldn't change any of it. Also, if I were writing a different version of my life, I would give myself yoga as a teenager so that I could feel my body. Like, Mm -hmm. I just think I didn't feel my body until my late 20s. And You can't sing if you don't feel your body. Like, you can't sing professionally, for sure, if you don't feel your body. And I just wish I could kind of, you know, I wish I could have had that sooner in life. Because Mm -hmm. now I do realize, like, oh, all these things I was wrestling with, it was because I was still in that mode of treating my body like a taxi for my brain. And it really was the essay writing that that validated me, as you talked about, um, that I think, you know, cut me off. From the beauty of of that internal resonance that your voice represents. So I'm just yeah. I'm thrilled for you. I'm delighted. Oh, great. Well, I hope that you've also, you know, found a way to like be in love with singing still. And I hope that that's still a place in your life as well. Because what a beautiful thing to be able to have and a gift to be able to have for yourself, but also share for other people too. Yeah. You know what? I really haven't, but I'm working on it. <laughs> it's, it is a priority for me in this in Good. this decade. Well, tell me about living in London, going from North Carolina to London. What's that been like for you? Oh, it's been so fun. I mean, hard at first, right? Like any transition is. But um, living in a really big city and having access to public transportation, which is on time and can get me across the city in like less than 30 minutes, is crazy. And also like having access to opera and classical music 
in a like constant way, but also in a really accessible way. Like that's not something I had growing up in the South. We have North Carolina opera in Raleigh and North Carolina symphony. And there's really not much going on here. And you have to wait like a long time to kind of see those things play out. So having just constant and affordable access to classical music has made me fall even more in love with the art form than I already was. London is such a gorgeous and artsy city. And I just, I'm completely in love with it. Like, I just know it's a great place for me to be at this stage of my life in my early 20s. I've absolutely, absolutely loved it. It's a great city. Tell me about your favorite performance that you've had so far. I, for the first time this year, have fallen in love with German art song. I never liked singing in German at UNC. I thought there were like there were too many consonants. It like intimidated me on paper. But I am really passionate about performing works by female composers. Um, there's a classical canon of lots and lots of men who wrote really good stuff, and I love singing their stuff. But a lot of them had like wives and sisters and peers who also wrote gorgeous stuff. So I'm really passionate about kind of going through the library and finding these pieces and singing them. And I have been singing a lot of German song by Clara Schumann, who was Robert Schumann's wife, and Fanny Mendelssohn Hensel, who was uh, Felix's sister, and Alma Mahler, who was Gustav Mahler's wife. So there are all these women who wrote these gorgeous, gorgeous songs. And I've just absolutely fallen in love with, with singing their music. So um, I've had a couple opportunities to sing a program of their songs in public. And that's been work that feels really aligned to my personal values, but also it's just gorgeous music. So I love singing it. That is awesome. Well, Kennedy, what a treat to talk with you. I am so happy that you mentioned that you'd love to be a guest on our show in that other interview and that you said yes to me. And <laughs> I'm so honored that you listened to Sarah and I and have had us as a part of your life for, for these years. Oh. So thank you all around. Thank you so much. I am absolutely honored to be here and I will never, ever stop talking about this to anyone ever. So <laughs> thank you. And thank you both for the really important and hard work that you do. It is so appreciated by me and so many others in this really beautiful community. And so the work that you do is, it never goes unnoticed and it's really important. So thank you for carrying on even when it's really hard. I am grateful that Kennedy agreed to join me on the show today. I'm grateful that all of you listened. Don't forget to save the date for our Paducah weekend on October 20th through 21st. We can't wait to see you there. Sarah will be back here with you on Friday. Until then, have the best week available to you. Pantsuit Politics is produced by Studio D Podcast Production. Elise Knapp is our managing director. Maggie Penton is our community engagement manager. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. Our show is listener-supported. Special thanks to our executive producers. Martha Brunitsky. Allie Edwards. Janice Elliott. Sarah Greenup. Julie Haller. Helen Handley. Tiffany Hassler. Emily Holliday. Katie Johnson. Katina Zuganellis-Kasling. Barry Kaufman, Molly Kors, Catherine Vollmer, Lori Ladau, Lily McClure, Linda Daniel, Emily Neasley, The Cousins, Tawny Peterson, Tracy Putoff, Sarah Ralph, Jeremy Sequoia, Katie Steigers, Karen True, Annika Uveline, Nick and Elisa Valelli, Amy Whited, Emily Helen Olson, Lee Shea McDonough, Morgan McHugh, Danny Osmond, Jen Ross. 
Sabrina Drago, Jeff Davis, Melinda Johnston, Michelle Wood, Joshua Allen, Nicole Berkless, Paula Bremer, and Tim Miller.